Ishbel McFarlane, and this is the last of four podcast episodes exploring the Scottish poet Edwin Morgan. When I start a project like this, I like to have one of those wee softcover moleskin notebooks that come in packs of two. They're bonny colours, bonny paper. But I recently counted that I had 59 special jotters in the house, most barely used. I decided I finally had to finish a jotter my French teacher gave me in 1999 when I was 12. I know I was 12 because the first page reads... Je me présente, brackets, introducing myself. Comment t'appelles-tu, brackets, what's your name? Je m'appelle Isabelle. Tu as quel âge? J'ai 12 ans. Où habites-tu, brackets, where do you live? J'habite à Kindros, en Écosse. I liked German at school. And as my mum was a teacher, she asked one of her colleagues, Madam Watson, to teach me French in the evenings. The second page of my jotter opens with, Tu vas bien, Isabelle? Madam Watson took mum aside after a few weeks of my lessons to say she was worried about me. When my mum asked me about it, I admitted that of the options for reply in my jotter, Oui, je vais bien, merci. Comme si, comme ça. Ce ne va pas, or je suis fatigué. I could only ever remember je suis fatigué, so I told her that each week when she asked. The pages are graph lined for better handwriting, the way the French do and we don't. The cover page has a photo of a calculator in a jeans pocket which reads cahier. Immediately after a page titled Saying What I Do, which starts Le jeudi, j'ai un cours de français. I have notes from a Zoom meeting with the Edwin Morgan Trust on the 20th of August 2020. One of my notes says, place emphasis, I can provide local things. Local is in capitals. Translation. Metaphor. They both mean to carry across. Metaphor comes from the Greek, metaphora from meta, over, across, and ferin, to carry, bear. Translate comes from the Latin trans, across, beyond, and latus, born, or carried. Across carry, across carried. Never has there been a more poetically delightful pair of words than translation and metaphor. Concepts to seep into everything from the palimpsests of map-making, the joys and struggles of teaching a toddler language, reusing an old jotter, looking from your flat to a frozen pond in the winter and a boating pond in the spring. Carrying across is the poet's job. It's human work too. It's, well, it's fun. Connections are fun. Moving across, bringing from then to now, from there to here, from them to you, from me to them. Edwin Morgan was a translator of high regard and high skill. He worked from languages he knew and to languages he didn't, into English and Scots. In many ways, he was a translator before he was a poet, his first published book being his translation of Beowulf. Though, Of course, when is a verse translation not a piece of verse? 
Beowulf is an Anglo-Saxon epic poem about three battles between the hero, Beowulf, and three otherworldly opponents, Grendel, Grendel's mother, and a fire-breathing dragon. The text we have of the poem is a thousand years old, but the poem is older, maybe composed in the 6th century AD, maybe the 7th, maybe the 8th. In fact, Morgan's translation of Beowulf is widely seen as the first significant modern translation, a translation which wanted to bring the poem into the world of modern poetry. It is so easy to see this opener to his career, a modern translation of an ancient text, as a statement of intent about his world of words. To start at the back, before English, to translate one English into another English, to show the depth and breadth of the word hoard, the rhymes and horrors that our Anglic languages can manage. It might be too easy to make these connections, to extend the practical decision of translating from a language he had just studied in his undergraduate degree, and to turn that decision into a manifesto. But it isn't just readers who think of it like that. In the original introduction to his 1952 book, Morgan set out his disdain for what he calls archaic diction and embraces a modern, natural way with the words, an easy spoken diction which he would use in almost all his original work from then on. And later, 50 years later, when the translation was republished by Carcanet in 2001, he described Beowulf as his unwritten war poem. A remarkable revelation. He says... The translation which was begun shortly after I came out of the army at the end of the Second World War was in a sense my unwritten war poem and I would not want to alter the expression I gave to its themes of conflict and danger, voyaging and displacement, loyalty and loss. He ends his 2001 preface with the phrase I've quoted before on this podcast. Inter arma muse tacent. In war, the muses are silent. But crucially, he adds, they are not sleeping. In reading about Edwin Morgan, I started to align his war experience with my motherhood experience. In some ways, this is a terrible review of motherhood. In other ways, it's a terrible review of war. There are ways that the muses are silent through motherhood. The fog of the early days, feeling utterly adrift from life. I felt so strongly in May's first three months that I had gone to the moon. An aptly sci-fi Morgan analogy to imagine a colony of mothers scrabbling by on the moon. Moon-eyed with exhaustion, bleeding crying, trying to stay alive. But you do come home. You return from the expedition. One thing I didn't know about Beowulf before I started this project was that it's hardly about what I think of as war at all. The three main fights are one-on-one. Well, nearly. 
Aging, failing King Beowulf is joined in his final battle by a single loyal retainer to share the dragon's fire and speed its side. There are 50 years between Beowulf's first victories and his last, helped by a younger man. Translation again. Metaphor. Young Morgan laboured over the translation first in his young youth, a man in his 20s and early 30s, in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And then, when it was published again, he was old, 50 years older, vulnerable, in need of help. He couldn't dive down to the underwater home of Grendel's mother alone any more. No one could. But the independence of Beowulf and the independence of Morgan were not the same. Beowulf left his trusty warband and the beer and joy of the shared hall for his battles and then returned to them. Morgan worked alone, fought for his words alone and, to himself, was alone. In the poem Seven Decades, which he wrote for his 70th birthday in 1990, Morgan characterises his 1940s as the war, while the 1950s is Beowulf, loneliness and struggle. I will read the 1940s verse, but then we can hear Morgan read his own 1950s, beside the hum of Great Western Road on a television programme brought out for his 70th birthday. At twenty I got marching orders, kit bag, farewell to love, not arms, though our sole arms were stretchers, a freezing glentress winter where I was coaxing sticks at six to get a stove hot for the cooks, found myself picked quartermaster's clerk, this one seems a bit less gormless than the bloody others, did gas drill in the stinging tent, met Tam McSherry who farted at will a musical set. At thirty, I thought life had passed me by, translated Beowulf for want of love. And one night stands in city centre lanes, they were dark in those days, were wild but bleak. Sidney Graham in London said, you know I always thought so, kissed me on the cheek. And I translated Rilke's loneliness is like a rain, and week after week after week, strained to unbind myself, sweated to speak. The academic Chris Jones, in an article about Morgan, Old English and Nostalgia, makes a connection between Morgan's description of translating Beowulf in the poem Seven Decades and how he explicitly described it to his biographer, James McGonagall. Chris Jones says, What the published conversation with McGonagall clearly emphasises is what Seven Decades more obliquely insinuates that from the start, Morgan intimately associated Beowulf both with his experiences as a soldier and his experiences as a gay man. His translation was a way of dealing both with the sexual inhibitions and with the inhibitions the war placed on him as a writer. In fact, Morgan started translating Beowulf quite soon after the war. His 1950s then were the sort of thing we called in my History of Art degree the long 1950s. And they sometimes feel like that for Scotland as well, 
leapt entirely over as we run from the war to the new life of the 1960s. Not that Scotland experienced any flower power or much in the way of love or peace in the 1960s. In seven decades, Morgan describes it like this. At 40, I woke up, saw it was day, found there was love, heard a new beat, heard beats, sent airmail solidarity to Sao Paulo's poetic concrete revolution, new Glasgow, what? New Glasgow, new, somehow. New with me, with John, with Crane's diffusion of another concrete revolution, not bad, not good, but new, and new was no illusion, a spring of words, a sloughing, an ablution. I always remember quoting to my dad the phrase I'd heard trotted out on TV that if you remember the 1960s, then you weren't there. My dad was in his late teens in the summer of love, off to university by the summer of 69. Everyone in Scotland can remember the 1960s, he told me. Dunfermline, he assured me, was not San Francisco. But it was new. My grandma used to tell the story of going to see Dad in his student digs at Edinburgh, in a building in Pollock Halls which was unchanged when I lived there in the mid-2000s. All the windows were open in the summer heat, students studying for their exams, and from every window came the sound of bridge over troubled water. It was new, not transformed, not high, but new. And of course for Morgan, there was love in the 1960s where before there had been only Beowulf translation. Love didn't replace his art. The romance with John Scott let poems pour out of Morgan about John, about space, about language, poems in traditional forums and in the newness of concrete. Sao Paulo's poetic concrete revolution. He was able to live the international optimism of international modernism in his brand new 1960s flat, all mod cons. But the long, dark decade of the late 1940s and 1950s was the work of translating over 3,000 lines into an English which, for all its success and natural modern English flow, has sometimes been criticised as too scholarly. That translating took place in his childhood bedroom in Rutherglen, in a house with his chilly Presbyterian parents. It means something to the translation for Morgan to have scratched away at it in Rutherglen, steeped in a life which was newly not war, newly alone and not surrounded by dozens of comrades. A demobbed world where he had enough solitude to write, but before love, before his true career as a poet. It is easy to compare the experience which shaped Morgan's translation with that of another famous poet and Beowulf translator, Seamus Heaney. Heaney translated the epic 30 years into his career, 
after winning the Nobel Prize that, to be honest, Edwin Morgan could fair have done with winning. Heaney's translation is more oral. Sometimes it uses Ulster Scots, where Morgan sticks to standard English. And Ulster Scots, as with so much in Ulster, is weighted with meaning of its own. Humphs in politics of another conflict, newly quelled when Heaney published in 1999. In fact, when Morgan was asked what he thought of Heaney's translation, he replied, Too Irish. I want to know about that. Of all the things I have learned about this complex and sometimes vulnerable man, of our shared experiences, of the things we cannot share and could not understand about each other, the thing I most would like to talk to Edwin Morgan about is that summation. Too Irish. What does that mean for Morgan's translations? Is his Beowulf not Scottish? Or just Scottish enough? Is it just the annoyance of an only child who always, even to the end of his days, wanted to succeed as a poet not just by opening lives and sharing worlds, but in the balance book? Commissions, royalties, prizes. Numbers on a ledger are nice gold stars for a bright school prize winner grown up. Morgan said... I've always been equally attracted by something that's intensely local and things which are international. And to me, his work is so Glasgow. Not too Glasgow, but so Glasgow. And I think he would have liked that. But not translation? Is that something for him today in his own time? He translated the Russian poet Mayakovsky into Scots language. Did that make it Scottish? Morgan said of translation, Translating is the search for the English or Scots equivalent, but an equivalent of what? Not, apparently, the words of the foreign language, so much as the words of the poem itself, which has attained some sort of non-verbal interlinguistic experience in the mind. Without desiring to be mystical, I believe there does seem to be some sense in which the poem exists independently of the language of its composition. In which case, how is Beowulf his war poem? Translation is almost too heavy with metaphor. Even the fact of metaphor being a translation of translation. It's like a fractal image. The more you zoom in, the more complexity you find blossoming up to you as you fall into the diagram. To think creatively about translation is to fall into a fractal of ever-flowering, poetically attractive complexity going maybe nowhere. But when we read translation, we're hardly ever concerned with the act of translating at all. Often the job of the translator, like the job of the theatre technician, is the better it's been done, the less it's noticed. Maybe that's the aim. Is that the issue Morgan had with Heaney's Beowulf being too Irish? The fact that it was Heaney's Beowulf. Before the pandemic, I was working on a project with the National Theatre of Scotland to try and explore translation as content and not just form. 
I wanted to work with artists using Scots language, Gaelic and British Sign Language, the three main native minority languages of Scotland. I wanted to try and explore what translation meant on its own, separate from the text it was translating. Lockdown pushed us down the fractal, though, and the whole project had to be translated to online. One time, the BSL interpreter couldn't make it to a Zoom meeting, and I had to use my terrible BSL to talk about the wild complexity of translation with Moira, the deaf artist working on the project. A metaphor within the translation, as I struggled to move between modalities to move from the linear solo that is English to the multi-channel symphony that is BSL. Even moving between Scots and English, my own native languages, just exploded ideas and challenge and failure and beauty. I couldn't get beyond the fact of it all. I drowned myself in similes and I couldn't make the art. There are just too many layers stealing an hour here and there away from my then tiny baby to read about translation or to try and articulate my thoughts. And then you add into the mix that the for of metaphor comes from the Greek ferin to carry bear, which comes from the Proto-Indo-European root bear, which also meant to bear children. It is in bairn, barrow, bear, birth, bring, Burden, confer, cumbersome, differ, difference, euphoria, fertile, furtive, infer, lucifer, offer, periphery, pheromone, prefer, refer, semaphore, splendiferous, suffer, transfer, vociferous. Down, down into the fractal. So... Rather than just thinking about translation for this final podcast about a writer who wrestled adeptly with these ideas throughout a 60-year career, I thought the best way through was to roll my sleeves up and do some translation for myself. Now. I wanted to translate an Anglo-Saxon text on motherhood, on what it was like to be a mother a thousand years ago. Or something older, or not British, I wanted a tiny shard of insight into the primary work of almost half the population in previous times and places. I asked around. Friends who were academics. Friends who studied other literatures and cultures. I put out a tweet. Question for Poetry Stroke Drama Stroke History Twitter. What's the earliest text on motherhood you know of? Older the better. Ancient is best. In any language. I wanted to be more specific, jog the minds of people who might not know the sort of person I was looking for, so I added, Do you know anyone who might know about Celtic history, classical lit, ancient Indian literature and holy texts, Anglo-Saxon vibes, medieval junk, Jewish prayers and texts, other things I'm too ignorant to know I don't know? Please to retweet thank you many thanks. For my small Twitter footprint, the spread was wide. Many people tagged many friends. You should speak to at so-and-so. You might know about this at someone else. But answers? No, not really. 
Eventually, a woman who knows someone who knows some people I know suggested the book Motherhood and Mothering in Anglo-Saxon England by Mary Dockery Miller. Yes, I said. Yes, yes, yes. This is the book I want. I got it from the library, opened it in joy and relief and read Dockery Miller in the preface. I first became interested in mothers in Anglo-Saxon England when I became a mother and began to wonder how mothers of a thousand years ago raised their children, where their circumstances and problems overlapped with mine, and how they differed. Yes, I repeated. Yes, I read on. I began looking for Anglo-Saxon mothers who, it turned out, were not so easy to find. No. Right. Dockery Miller explains that mothers were not utterly excluded from public life, but that they were not recorded. In a time when monks were the primary readers and writers, the fact that mothering women did not record themselves, or that their records did not reach us, seems hardly worth mentioning. Dockery Miller ends her preface summarising the place of mothers in Anglo-Saxon texts. Typically, they have no place. Anglo-Saxon mothers are traditionally excluded and hidden, but they can be found. And they can tell us, ultimately, about motherhood and mothers in our own culture, as well as in theirs. And so I returned to Beowulf, to find the five mothers that Dockery Miller had found there, to learn from her what they did, what they are doing, how they mother, what they felt. The poem is an epic part of a traditionally male genre. The culture the poem depicts is grandly heroic. What is praised and glorified is strength in battle, dying in the attempt, bravery, loyalty, leadership, power. And also, slightly delightfully, shiny things. Like, they're super into shiny things. At the end, when Beowulf is dying, he's like, go and bring me a whole mess of shiny things so I can look at them before I die. His pal does, and then he dies. What a way to go. We didn't study any Anglo-Saxon, also called Old English, in my English literature degree. We didn't even do Middle English. The earliest post-it note in my hoarded Norton anthology of English literature is Sir Thomas Wyatt, born 1503. I seem, from annotations, to have read a single poem by him. Classic undergrad. I did some Chaucer in sixth year at school, but the 300-year linguistic gap between Beowulf and the Canterbury Tales is much much wider than the 500-year gap between Thomas Wyatt and today. Tommy, my husband, did study Anglo-Saxon at uni, and he agreed to help me in my attempt at a Scots translation. I only wanted to choose a couple of lines about motherhood or a mother, to give it a go. The task seemed enormous, and of course it is. I read about the poem in Dockery Miller. I listened to Seamus Heaney reading his translation. I read Morgan's translation. I read Morgan writing about the translation. I looked at a glossed prose translation. I obviously was still utterly unqualified to translate the poem, but, you know, why not? 
When Morgan translated Beowulf, he had just studied the text and the language as part of his undergraduate degree at the University of Glasgow. As a studious student, he took meticulous notes and annotated his copy of the Anglo-Saxon reader in prose and verse. It was precious to him, that textbook, and he kept it even longer than I have kept my Norton anthology. When he moved out of Whittingham Court as an old man in his eighties, that undergraduate reader was among his possessions still. He had cut out some snippets for his scrapbooks. The textbook was so important to him that at some point he butchered a second copy and pasted the cut lines back into his original, making what Chris Jones calls a Frankentext. There's some gorgeous metaphor in there, but I can't quite reach it. Tommy's offer of help with my translation was much appreciated, but came with the issue of who would look after the wane while we worked. Because of May's sleep, we are never alone together on a normal day. No evening, no nap time. If one of us is working or cooking or cleaning, the other is with the baby. That's how it goes. First, we tried surrounding ourselves with books and translations in the living room as May stamped about. But May wanted to take any book from our hands and read it in the way that she does, narrating what she can see in her few words with a liberal dousing of croaky vocal fry sentence-making sounds. Here she is, two nights ago, for example, giving a reading from my diary. Next, I tried bringing a rucksack of books and a clipboard with Beowulf printouts while May played in the snow, hoping to talk things through with Tommy and to note with gloved hands his shouted information about declensions and tenses. That, you'll be surprised to hear, did not work either. We failed to make a snowman in the two-metre by four-metre bit of grass at the front of the tenement, we fed cucumber to a cold and moany May on the street, and then we all went back up to the flat. To paraphrase the film Notting Hill, Edwin Morgan never had to put up with this shit. Finally, two friends took May for legally condoned childcare, and we had two hours. But I swithered and floundered. Which extract? How to start? The lack of time and brain space that characterise making art as a mother are sometimes a blessing. Sometimes I feel absolutely and very literally that I do not have time for indecision or self-doubt. That feeling meant that the first half of making this podcast was like flying. But sometimes it means you can't see through the har of tiredness and past the parts of your brain that are running various other household tasks and non-tasks. We picked one extract and plodded through the words, the tenses, collecting what the Bosworth Toller Anglo-Saxon Dictionary said, along with the various translations we had access to, 
books piled up around us in the room where we do May's nappies. To give you a sense of who Tommy is, he was exhausted and not 100% well the day that we attempted this, but he was totally transformed by finding what he thought to be a mistake in the gloss text. Now all I had to do was actually start the thing. I wonder what Edwin Morgan's life would have been like if he'd fallen in love with someone he wanted to work with, to create with. The great love of his life, John Scott, was a storeman in various factories in Lanarkshire. John was a dancer and a lover and a smoker, but he wasn't, as far as I can tell, a poet. He was muse rather than collaborator for Morgan, I think. I don't know what John thought of his lover's poems, but I know that they went on holiday together, went to the pictures together, watched rubbishy game shows on TV together, and that is a kind of collaboration too, without a doubt. But when Morgan wanted to get words on the page, John was sent away, or stayed away. Either. I opened a blank document on my screen to translate our notes into the Scots translation. But Tommy turned over my jotters and the original text and said, do it now. Just speak it in Scots from what you can remember. I flashed panic. I too was a studious student. An only child, school prize winner, the kind of souk that true artists are supposed to despise. I have rarely felt prouder in my life than in a pub in my first year at the university when a guy I sort of knew in third year saw me carrying my much-tabbed Norton anthology and was amazed at what I'd covered. Souk, I am. Souk. But Tommy was right. And so I buried my head and spoke a slow, herpling translation to the table. It was words from my childhood, from poems I like, from reading, from my dad. It was, I thought, I think, very pedestrian. I thought I'd missed lots out, but you have to keep going. Like childbirth, there is no way but forward. It seems extreme to compare translating five lines of Anglo-Saxon to 24 hours of labour, but there you are. You just have to. Do it. Before the birth, I had revised, been at my classes, read my books, talked to teachers, watched videos. I had studied and prepared, but, you know, the thing was the doing. The labour. The work. It was to be... Work. And each second it was work. More work. Work. Not the whole thing. You can't do the whole thing. You can only do this thing. This work. You want it to be one way. You want to be alone. You want to be moving. You want music or oils. You want privacy. You want what you want and you get what you get. And always there is the work. This podcast. This time. I want to work. To make art. I want to care for my daughter, to teach her, to learn from her, 
I want her to socialise, to see her grandparents, to go inside, to see museums and gigs and theatre. I want to take her to the fringe and to see her cousins. I can't. But the work, the work stays. Housework, homework, artwork. Macker and Mither. The extract we chose to translate is about Grendel's mother, the second monster Beowulf must defeat. She is referred to in this extract as an avenger. Her son was killed by Beowulf and she has come to avenge him. That's how the poem wants to define her. As an avenger, Beowulf can rightfully kill her. As Dockery Miller points out, Simply killing a bereaved mother seems distinctly unheroic behaviour. The first time I read that, I cried. In the way you sometimes cry as a parent. Adverts, songs, finding Dory. In that way, I cried. The love of mothers. What mothers will do for their children. There are a million things to say about the contrasts in Morgan's translation with Heaney's and Dockery Miller's. Dockery Miller wants Grendel's mother to be a person in her own right, a wronged and worthy mother trying to perform motherhood, not just a monster. So while Dockery Miller has her as Grendel's mother, noble lady, formidable woman. Morgan has her as the mother of Grendel, monster in woman's sex. And Heaney has Grendel's mother, monstrous hellbride. In my off-the-cuff Scots version, I found the sexism easier to find than the nobility. Spontaneous is not always best. But I did not call Grendel's mother an avenger. It wasn't deliberate. But in this translation, Retchend is more of the wretch that it contains than the avenger. I fell further down the fractal. I took that improvised translation and went back through, tying it to the original, gathering slightly more precise words from my own unlocked word hoard and the dragon's bounties of dictionary and thesaurus. It's not verse, it's not direct, it's not word for word, but it is more translation than metaphor. Here's Tommy reading the original Anglo-Saxon. Thata Wretchend Thayit lifte after Lathum, lange thraye after Guthchare, grandless modor, ides, aglaquif, urmthe yemunde, sethe watereye san wunian skolde, childas dramas. And here is my translation. Ebdi kent there was a dur wifey. Minding on her pain, minding on her bad use, after all this dramash was ours, it was Grendel's mother. 
Ser quain, unca besom, fu o dool, staying in the waters o dread, the cold burns. Maybe it's our Scottish. Maybe it's our Ishbel. My wee French jotter is nearing your foo up now. I'll be needing another. Or needing to fun another. Another for me to put her drawings all hour. Maybe screevings next. Maybe letters. What would Morgan he done wi a wee and wha need it to be collaborator? Wha couldn't he gie you the week you were wanting for the dark o' screevin', fun, thinking, reading? In old age, he would sometimes express a wish he had had bairns. To his friend James McGonagall, he said, Other people have sons or daughters to help them, why don't I? He saw his words as wains and awe. He said, you can't leave children, you can't leave a family, but you hope that you are able to leave some of your writings to posterity. In a way, perhaps, they are my children. Aye, in a way, maybe May is my writings. And Tommy's in awe. No, just as metaphor. No, just in the cantrip potion of DNA that maks a soul. I hear my ain words back to me frae her wee moo. Translate it in a new body. Adapt it. Nice cuddle, doggy. Nice kisses. Ah, mummy baby's on. You okay, mummy? Oui, ma petite chouchou. Je suis fatiguée, mais je vais bien, merci. Literary critic Cyril Connolly's Wheel Kent phrase on parenthood and earth is There is no more sombre enemy of good art than the pram in the hall. Thon phrase haunts macker parents, macker mothers. But what if he was just no brave enough for the supernatural battle, for the dark and the work? To shed thon old hamely jacket, thon old ice. What if? What if the pram in the haw is stowed out we good ert? Is it true that we come alive not once but many times? We're drawn back to the image of the seed in darkness or the greying skin of the snake that hides a shining one. It will push that used-up matter off, and even the film of the eye is sloughed. That the world may be the same, and we are not, and so the world is not the same. The second eye is making again this place, these waters, and these towers. They are rising again as the eye stands up to the sun, as the eye salutes the sun. Many things are unspoken in the life of a man, and with a place there is an unspoken love also, in undercurrents, drifting, waiting its time. A great place and its people are not renewed lightly, 
the caked layers of grime grow warm like homely coats. But yet they will be dislodged, and men will still be warm. The old coats are discarded, the old ice is loosed, the old seeds are awake. Slip out of darkness. It is time. <laughs> what do you think? That's fantastic, isn't it? That's really good. I don't know very much uh, Edwin Morgan, but that's definitely the best one I've read. Edwin Morgan's Second Life was written, produced and performed by me, Ishbel McFarlane. The music in these episodes comes from the Free Music Archive and is by A Sunny Day in Glasgow, Chad Crouch, Noel Griffin, Kylo Kaz, Dana Boulay and Adriano Oru, as well as Scottish indie legends Idlewild. These podcasts were supported by the Edwin Morgan Trust and my thanks go to them for including me as part of the Second Life project. More can be found about that project and you can see the other Morgan-inspired pieces by the other artists at edwinmorgantrust.com. A great deal of the details of Morgan's life that I used in these podcasts was learned from Jim McGonagall's book Beyond the Last Dragon. It is a thorough and detailed biography from someone who knew Morgan personally and it's a great place to go if you want to deep dive into Morgan's work and life. Jim also answered my questions and tumbling lists of thoughts and pointed me in the right direction during my research, so my thanks go to him. Thanks also go to Rob Jones, Helen Zaltzman, Shan McIntyre, Rosemary Cunningham, Joe Waterfield, Duncan Jones at the ASLS and Irene and Gordon McFarlane. Most thanks of all to my collaborators, Tommy and me. <laughs> <laughs>